This week in KMA Land, early morning storm wakes up KMA Land. Council Bluffs Elementary School sustains storm damage. Sydney Council rejects mayor's veto on city administrator post. Shenandoah Council debates property sale. Red Oak Council once again ponders franchise fee hikes. And the latest from the Page County Board of Supervisors. I'm Mike Peterson. KMA Land residents woke up to something else besides an alarm clock Wednesday morning. The sound of thunder preceded heavy rain and high winds from a strong line of storms moving quickly from northeast Nebraska through southwest Iowa. Katie Gross is meteorologist with the National Weather Service's Valley Nebraska office. Gross tells KMA News conditions were ripe in the atmosphere for the storms. We just really had this very strong bow echo that formed over northeast Nebraska and as it surged kind of southeast towards southwest Iowa. The wind speed was just kind of incredible with it. We had gusts that were up to 70 to 80 miles an hour at times that caused lots of widespread tree damage throughout the area. Pottawatomie County appears to have taken the brunt of the storm damage. Pottawatomie County Emergency Management Coordinator Doug Reed says the storms picked up speed as they entered the county, touching off severe weather warning protocol. We kicked in all the appropriate emergency notification policies here in this county. If the weather service issues a severe thunderstorm warning with a what we call a destructive damages tag in the warning, we, we automatically set off tornado sirens for those impacted communities and areas simply because, you know, we've seen historically what, you know, significant winds like that can cause a lot of damage and put people at risk. Reed says high winds cause widespread power outages in the county. We know that we've got, you know, reports of some power lines down, some transformers down, some areas where even some larger trees have been blown down. I know in the southwest part of Council Bluffs where we have one of our storage facilities that the wind was significant enough it it, uh, pushed around one of our uh, disaster response trailers a little bit. Reed says residents may report other storm damage through a link on his agency's website. statewide system that we we use in partnership with Iowa Homeland Security and Emergency Management. Now on our website, people can go to PCEMA. Ia.org, and they'll be able to see right there on our homepage uh, a link uh, where they can report any storm damages that they have. Speaking of damage, one of the structures hardest hit by Wednesday's storm was the Council Bluffs Elementary School. Lewis Central School officials reported early Wednesday morning that the roof over the swimming pool at Titan Hill Intermediate School was blown off by high winds brought by the storm. Brent Hosing is the Lewis Central superintendent. Hosing tells King of May News he received a call at around 7 that morning from his operations manager of the roof had been taken off Titan Hill. While it was slightly less significant than initially thought, he says most of the top over the pool had been removed and spread across the area. The membrane had been stripped off the roof and was hanging off the side of the building, and then the insulation, insulation panels um, were kind of strewn across um, our campus up here. Um, clear into the neighbor's yard, and so it was just an absolute mess. Hosing says several ceiling tiles had also fallen from the ceiling, and light fixtures had received significant water damage. However, Hosing adds that no one was injured, and the instructional portion of the building was mostly unaffected, allowing them to continue to hold their summer daycare program. But the superintendent says the pool area is out of commission for the rest of the summer as they conduct repairs. We do have a summer swim program that we partner with the Council Bluffs Um, swim club and uh, so they're going to have to relocate for the end of the summer and they also provide you know lessons and opportunities for adults to swim and so um, we're not going to be able to host that obviously moving 
for us for the rest of the summer. Hosing adds there was a silver lining to the incident as the school's football team was nearby to assist with the cleanup efforts along with other district staff. That was pretty awesome to have um, our young men pop up and, and help with um, that cleanup. And, and they, they were up here for a while and just basically helped track, track down pieces that have, that have blown all around campus and at least put it in a pile so we could load it up in a dumpster and take it away. So um, that was kind of a feel-good moment, um, just kind of that community feel. And that was kind of the, the, at the time where you start thinking, okay, things are going to be okay. You know, we're going to, it's just stuff. We're going to put a new roof on this. It's going to be good as new. We're going to put a new ceiling on the inside. Hosing adds they're still taking in damage assessments from around the districts as a large tree limb fell on the middle school's roof. A batting cage was blown across the baseball field and a few signs and fences are blown down. While there's no set timetable for the roof repairs, Hosing says they still have a fair amount of time before school starts on August 23rd and the high school swimming season. Sydney City Council this week turned thumbs down on the mayor's veto of a recent vote. By a 4 to nothing vote Monday evening, the council approved overriding Mayor Ken Brown's veto of an ordinance to establish a dual city administrator and clerk position. The council recently approved the third and final reading of the ordinance at its June 26 meeting, which would replace the current setup of Brown serving as acting city administrator. Previously, the council had asked Brown to step down from some duties as acting administrator and unanimously approved a motion of no confidence in the mayor requesting a voluntary resignation last month. Councilman Don Benedict says the position is to provide an individual to oversee the city staff and projects full-time and provide a point of contact regarding city business. Most mayors have a full-time job outside of city government. City needs someone at City Hall or easily accessible to the public, city officials, and staff. In order to avoid confusion and lack of follow-through, we need a point of contact for the city attorney, engineers, contractors, project managers, for grants, and so on. Benedict also pointed to the city's three different mayors in the past six years and believes the new position will provide more consistency. However, Brown has continually stated that Benedict has a conflict of interest on the matter and should have abstained from all votes and discussions on the ordinance due to his wife, Brenda Benedict, who currently is the deputy clerk and under the proposed ordinance would respond to the council in the absence of the clerk-administrator individual. There is no doubt that Don Benedict has a conflict of interest regarding anything affecting our employees. Half of our employees are his immediate family. The city is not a family business, nor a dictatorship. We work for the public. And Brown says the ordinance is invalid, claiming Benedict's vote in the first reading constituted a conflict of interest. The mayor further stated Benedict led the charge to establish the regulation to change the working conditions of his wife since Brown was seeking to hold her accountable for a job performance under the city's managerial structure. Benedict replied that talks of establishing the dual position date back to January 2021, before his time on the council. Additionally, Councilman Justin Shirley says the city's chain of command does not include the council having direct authority over the deputy clerk. The council has no supervisory powers of the deputy clerk. The city clerk, it goes to the city clerk and then the deputy clerk. So there is a degree of separation between council and Mr. Benedict's wife that you continuously accuse Benedict also believes there's been misinformation about the position and that a conflict of interest for him in the matter has yet to be proven. Following discussion, the council approved posting an advertisement for the city clerk administrator position until July 28th. 
hoping to interview candidates the week of August 7th. Considerable debate over a proposed property sale took place at Tuesday night's Shenandoah City Council meeting. By a 3-2 vote, the council approved the sale of city-owned property at 510 Tassa to Ross Gorby for $1. Gorby, who lives nearby, plans to demolish the existing house at that location at his own expense and build a garage. Council members narrowly approved the sale following a public hearing in which one person voiced objections to the proposed sale. Noting two other bidders to the property proposed renovating the structure, Kathy Silvestri questioned whether the house should be torn down when the city is facing a housing shortage. Garage situation. A garage is not going to bring a family here. A family is not going to live in a garage. So it's a three to four bedroom house if a family could possibly live there in the near future or somebody can rehab it, why would that not be an option versus let's just tear it down and put a garage there? Saying he wouldn't let a dog live in the house, Gorby called the structure an environmental hazard. All the ductwork's been compromised from that. You can see through the walls to the outside. There's two sump pump pits in the basement that always get water in it. The front leaks, the walls are rotten. It's uninsurable. The electricity coming into the house is not even up to code. It goes inside the house. Said going up through the roof. Four or five layers of shingles. It's uninsurable. Tuesday night's hearing was set following a similar three to two vote at the council's last regular meeting in June. Council members Kim Swank and Richard Jones once again voted against the sale. Jones says there's a disconnect between Gorby, who claims the house can't be rehabbed, and a city building inspector who claimed it was salvageable. I don't know if we should go back out and resurface this to our inspector and say, are you sure? Have you looked at it recently? Whatever, because this man's very passionate about it's not rehabable, and then we have a city inspector saying it can be. Likewise, Swank says he wants to see the house rehabbed. Council members Rita Gibson, Tony Graham, and John Eric Bratner voted in favor of the sale. Bratner says his vote could have been different had the other bidders appeared at the council meeting. Would I prefer to have a house on that? Absolutely. If either one of the other vendors or bidders would have showed up or would have asked questions to them, I feel like my vote might have went a different way. Again, I can only speak to my vote. Senator Mayor Roger McQueen says the building inspector also indicated that renovating the structure would take an extreme amount of remodeling. McQueen added the city should require future bidders to specify housing construction when seeking city properties. Red Oak officials are still exploring whether to impose franchise fees on a major utility company. On Monday night, the Red Oak City Council continued its discussion on whether to impose a 1-5% to fee through a franchise agreement on Mid-American Energy. Earlier this year, the council approved the 25-year agreement with the power company to allow them to use public right-of-way to provide the respective services, but included a 0% franchise fee to allow for further debate. Now, if the fee is imposed, it will replace the 1% local option sales tax on the two services with the first 1% of a franchise fee covering similar expenses, including public safety. Pointing to the fiscal year 2024 budget deficit of already over $720,000, Councilman Janice Lester says the city needs to start finding additional ways to chip away at its expenses. Somewhere we have to get control because we're operating on a de deficit budget. Yes. We can be deficit this year. What are we going to do next year with all the things we're doing? How are we going to fix it? I'm not saying this is the answer by any means, but we can't continue to do deficit budget. Councilman Pete Wenhoff continued to air concerns over the fees impact on taxpayers. 
Well, the fee is technically charged against MidAmerican. Wenhoff says residents and businesses would feel the increase through their utility bills. I, mean, I keep saying the same thing over and I keep repeating myself, but I just worry about these people that are on fixed incomes. If we take another another percent from them, or 2% or you go up 3%, they don't have it. There's a ton of people in Jeff. And I know we need more income, and we do. I totally agree with that, but I just don't feel... This is the time. Mayor Shauna Silvius noted the city of Atlantic recently opposed a 5% fee in natural gas, resulting in an average bump of $4 a month. In terms of the budget deficit, Sylvia says a few items were duplicated from the previous fiscal year, including the Eastern Avenue reconstruction project, which would eventually reduce the city's expenses slightly. I don't know how much we ended up paying for the Eastern project that was budgeted in both budget years. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that came out. Um, the ARPA funds did not get spent last year, so yeah. they're pulled over. So there's some things that are in there that are duplicated. And as far as the wages go, we actually come in under what was originally budgeted for, for 23. The council plans to bring back the discussion at a future meeting and review the impacts on residents, the school, and Montgomery County Memorial Hospital. In other business, the council approved the second and waived the third reading of ordinances increasing the city's water and sewer rates for the next three years. The increases entail a 10% jump for sewer rates each year. Water rates would go up 10% the first year and 7% the second and third year in minutes. Plans for a public awareness campaign on the upcoming Page County Jail bond issue are set. Meeting in a regular session Thursday night, the Page County Board of Supervisors unanimously approved a professional services agreement with Samuels Group initially for up to $22,000 to educate the public on a bond issue vote planned for November. The action comes after the county voted 2-1 to one to have the jail committee and Samuels Group move forward with a roughly $15 million proposal for a new public safety building, including the county jail, sheriff's office, dispatch, and the county emergency management agency. The committee recommended locating the building on the county farm on the south side of Clarenda, just west of U.S. Highway 71 and north of the driveway in the property. While saying they're not in the business of selling the proposal to taxpayers, Samuel Group's Greg Wild says they propose a three-prong approach to educating residents before they head to the polls. It's to inform and educate and help explain the facts which start with the need and then go to the solution, the proposed solution. And then the impacts of that proposed solution will also be explained in terms of the potential tax impact to individual taxpayers. Wilds says the process would include creating a website and Facebook page dedicated to the project, sending out mailers, and helping to organize town hall meetings. On top of also providing the tax impact on an average house in the county, Wilds says a tool would be available on the website for residents to quickly find out how the bond issue would impact their own property taxes. We'll actually be able to put in a little widget so you can put your parcel numbers in, and based on those parcel numbers, you can then see the potential tax impact based on the final numbers that would be proposed. Again, to help you understand what you would actually be voting for or against. Wild's proposal initially included a range between $21,000 and $30,000 to help account for any unknown costs, such as how many mailers they would need to produce and the cost of postage at this time, or how frequently they would hold informational meetings. Our supervisors, Chair Jacob Holmes, felt the higher end of that range was too much for the educational efforts. I'm a hard of educating with 21 to 30,000. We, 
if overrun campaign for five thousand dollars, you could do some serious educating. You could send mailers, cards, meetings. I I don't want to spend thirty thousand dollars on stuff that doesn't really have any. I mean, how many cards are you gonna send out? How many mailers can you do? Wild added the county could take on the educational efforts themselves, but added they would have to be careful as Iowa Code prevents the supervisors from pushing for a yes vote on a bond issue, saying they would have to stick strictly to educating on factual information. Additionally, Supervisor Judy Clark says the bond referendum is a much larger and more encompassing topic than supervisor elections. She adds educating voters should be high on their priority list. We did this with the bond issue at the courthouse. When we restored this building, we did our best to educate, educate, educate. That was the big thing was educate them, tell them how much it was going to cost them for the properties that they own. And I think that's really, really important. And at this point, I don't think dollars, I don't think we can cut them short and get the true word out to the people. Page County Sheriff Lyle Palmer echoed Clark's sentiment on allowing residents to make an educated vote and provide transparency. Clorinda officials want a little more time to review a proposal to remove multiple public parking spaces for a parking lot entrance just east of the downtown square. Meeting in regular session Wednesday evening, the Clorinda City Council tabled action on a proposal to remove two spots at 209 East Main Street just east of the Easter's True Value building to allow for an entrance off Main Street in the parking lot next to the building. Trevor Hayden is the property owner of the parking lot. Hayden says his goal is to try and provide more parking and an efficient product loading area for Easter's customers. My objective is, is to get more parking for Easter's customers to feel like they can park in the side parking lot and then loading of their rocks and their mulch make it a lot easier. Because up at uh, Hy-Vee and Tractor Supply, their competition, they can pull right up to their rocks and their, and their mulch and load up easily. Where at Easter's, they have to jump a curb, hop a curb, go over the tripping hazard of the city curb that's broken. So what I would like to do is pull out the two parking spots in the center and have it in a flow of traffic to enter in one way and exit down at the alley. Additionally, Hayden says Easters could then move their products back away from Main Street. He also plans to add a display of shrubs, trees, and mulch to make the parking lot more inviting, adding it's currently an eyesore near downtown and underutilized. Once he's restriped the lot, and Hayden expects about 17 to 20 parking spots available, and some lots near the back also will be opened up. With the business growth in that area of town, Hayden feels the parking is at a premium along this section of Main Street. We have all, all sorts of new businesses, I think, are growth with the laundromat. We have the new printing shop, uh, the, the workout center there, even here. There's, it seems like that parking lot out in front is always filling up. And then we got the new apartments across the street that are going in next to the, the popcorn place. I just think that's always congested right there, and it feels like there's not a whole lot of parking. Councilwoman Katie Neal hesitated somewhat on the proposal due to the number of parking spots the city would lose. You're asking us to give up three public parking spots and accept your word that the back is public. That's the only thing that concerns me is because we don't have control over how they utilize that, but that is... I'll tell you, like, I, I am in that area a lot, and it is difficult to find parking. Like, I'm usually parking on the square, and 
blocking as it is. So. Lorinda Lead Public Library Director Andrew Hopman also serves in the trail committee. He says this isn't the only parking they've had to navigate with the trail and suggested alerting potential drivers to the walking trail with striping on the sidewalk. That's in addition to the multiple streets, the bus barn parking that we're going to have to navigate. So it will just really, if anything, as a walking trail committee, I would only encourage that just like they striped the streets down there, that we maybe strike the sidewalk in front of the parking area and the bus barn entrance um, so that people would be able to safely navigate both drivers and pedestrians, cyclists, knowing that there's a flow of traffic there. Hayden says he still has to seek bids for the concrete work on the lot entrance and has a backup plan to direct traffic off of 14th Street should the council choose not to remove the street parking spots. With Councilman Austin Ashrell and Mayor Craig Hill absent for the meeting, the council decided to table action until their next meeting to garner their input on the proposal. Clarinda school officials continue to hammer out a new direction for the district's facilities. Following its regular meeting Wednesday evening, the Clarinda School Board held the latest in a series of work sessions with SiteLogic, the district's facilities consultants. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Thursday morning, Clarinda School Superintendent Jeff Privia says the board is about halfway through the planning process for a proposed addition to Clarinda's 712 complex, including six additional high school classrooms and much needed heating and air conditioning work. The next step for us is to work on construction documents. Those are the instructions for the contractors for our addition. We received a 3D presentation of what the six additional classroom space could look like. When it is built, um, we'll be looking at picking out some colors and those kind of things for that addition. We're looking at a uh, schedule of trying to be finished by the fall of 25, but when looking at schedule, that could leak into the rest of that school year. Proceeds in the district's Secure and Advanced Vision for Education or Save funds would cover the $9.8 million project. Privia says the high school edition is designed to address the building's most pressing need, space. When we started this process, we kind of took a, a three-headed approach, and we were going to do a, a geo bond, a voted PEPL, and save project because of all the work that needed to be done uh, here in the school system. So when that failed, we kind of retooled and said, okay, what's our greatest need that solves one of our biggest issues in that space. So we went ahead with the save dollars for the addition at the high school. Additionally, Privia says the district's facilities committee recently recommended a second bond issue vote in the November general elections to address the district's other facilities needs. The board is still working hard on that process. We've done some listening sessions and some community sessions. We've had that group as recommended to the board uh, in Monday's work session that we look at up to a $2 geo bond. So the board will sit down, take all that information in, and uh, make a decision on what direction they'd like to go. Privia says the board could decide at a bond issue referendum at its August 9th meeting. Voters rejected a $14 million bond issue and a voted physical plant and equipment levy back in March. Shenandoah's Barbecue Nirvana next weekend. Activities take place next Friday and Saturday in back of the Elks Lodge on U.S. Highway 59 in Shenandoah. It's the Shenandoah Shendig Barbecue Championship. Earlier this week, officials of the Forum to Revitalize Shenandoah announced registrations were closed after reaching the full field of teams for the competition. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Friday, Shendig Committee Co-Chair Mace Henson says registrations picked up over the past two months. Back in May, we were sitting at 16 and our, our, our minimum sanctioning teams was 25. So a um, little bit of panic, but not a big deal. But what we saw from then until now 
is this huge interest locally um, in the southwest corner, the, the western side of the state, the eastern side in Nebraska. They've just come out and absolutely come out. And, and, and now we're, we're 10 teams over what we had last year. Teams from numerous KMA land communities in six states are coming to Shenandoah next weekend. Shendig co-chair Stacy Truex says organizers learned a lot from last year's event. Well, I think last year, since it was new to us, it was just the organization of the event, since none of us has ever done anything like a barbecue competition. So working with the teams, working with the community, um, we have huge community support, and we're really relying on that this year as well. And the community has really come out to help us, which is wonderful. More with the web story at KMALand.com. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to kmaland.com. You can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This is a presentation of KMA News.